We are in week three of a sermon series that we are actually doing with about 75 other churches all around uh, Lake Norman, all around the Charlotte area called For Charlotte. And it's a three-part series. It was for the gospel. It was for the church. And this week is for our neighbors. And there's 41 thousand at least uh, other believers gathered around this morning and we're all reading out of the same scriptures this morning. It's an unprecedented move to join together to show our town uh, that the church is for them and, and that God is, is for them. So there's a great thing that can happen in our unity. I want to start by showing you a video about being for our neighbors. Will you be mine? Will you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Sure. Can you say that? <laughs> neighbor. Uh, yes, I am part of the Mr. Rogers generation. It's our gift to you all, so <laughs> you're welcome. Some of you were kind of tapping around. It's just one of those songs. You just got to be kind of happy, but it's really about the neighborhood, and as we're talking about this, the, the title of our sermon this morning is Image is Everything. And if we look at it throughout the ages, regardless of what parts of the world, no matter what century or culture, we, humankind has mostly been interested in trying to make uh, and create an image of ourselves or make a persona of ourselves. We take labels and logos and looks and styles and slap them all over ourselves to try to get other people to see us a certain way. And a lot of the times we're doing this because, you know what, we really want people to like us. And we think that if we look cool enough or right enough, that somebody's going to like us enough that they're going to marry us. Or somebody's going to like us enough, doggone it, that they're going to they're, they're gonna promote us. Or they're going to like us enough that we're, and we're going to look cool enough, we're going to fit in, that we get invited to every cookout, every school event, all of this, that we make it into the club. And so we work way, way, way too hard on the outside. I just spent some time, went back 
to the, the motherland in California, and especially Orange County in L.A., Tinseltown. I want to tell you that image is everything over there. But I want to tell you there's another truth to that. There's a great theological truth in image is everything because image is everything to God, but in a completely and utterly different way. You know, we spend, you know, advertisers are going to spend about $200 billion dollars on advertising to get us to try to buy their products so that we'll have a certain image that'll make us feel better about ourselves or, or maybe it'll attract us, it'll attract other people to us or there's some outcome that we're hoping to be that's all on a kind of a superficial, a superficial level. Sometimes we think if we buy the right golf club and we put it in our golf bag, and you got to have the right golf bag, right? But this is the one, Tiger Woods, he's got this driver. It's like, yeah, but you're going to hit it about 75 yards, like, off the freeway, or off the, off the fairway, <laughs> right? Or so-and-so, this actress has got, maybe it goes onto the freeway. I've had that happen to me, honestly. So, it, but maybe it's like a certain look or a certain purse, and it's like, oh, this movie star's got that. People are going to think, like, I'm just as famous, or I don't know. We get caught up in all of these things, but the more people like us, the more we fit in, but the, but the issue is that no matter what logos or labels that we put on ourselves, or what, no matter what labels and logos we put on other people, that there is one logo or label that's indelibly marked on every living human being. It, it can't be erased, and it's our primary label, so to speak. It's a watermark that's on it all, and that label reads, created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. And I want you to look to the left and to the right and just say, you are created in the image of God. Yeah. Now, for some of us, that's a little bit easier to believe, right? And if, it, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we have trouble telling ourselves that. Right? When something comes out of our mouth that we, it shouldn't have come out or that, that thought or whatever it was or we didn't help somebody that deserved it. I want to tell you that, that we can have trouble accepting the fact that we were created in the image of the living God. Genesis 1.27 tells us this. It says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So it, it, it is here. Moses, it believes, we believe, is the writer of Genesis. And in here, he defines the image of God as a human being. And then he says this. Actually, it's male and female. So uh, you're the image of God. Suhar, you are the image of God. Graham, you're the image of God. But you, and I am too. But together, male and female, all of us, we are the best representation of the image of God. And we talked about that last week, how important... This beautiful distinction that we have because we are unified in spite of ourselves being, being different. That we're united in Christ. When it talks about this verse saying that we're made in the image or the likeness, it means that we're similar but not identical. So for some of you, if you thought, hey, you finally found the scripture verse that backed up your theory that you're God... I want to tell you, this is not that verse. You're taking it out of context. We are made in the likeness. We are made in the image of God, which means that we're similar but not identical. We're similar but not identical. We have his likeness. We are, can reflect him. And we carry the family resemblance. Some of your kids, they walk through the, you know, dash through the, uh, the foyer there, and I can just take a look at them. I go, 
ah, that's that. I know exactly which family they belong because they look like dad. Or they look like mom, if God's really good. So, um, we carry the family resemblance. And we are like God, and this means two very, very important things. Because there's, there's debates, right? Theological questions on how closely are we made in the image of God. And what exactly does that mean? And uh, I've sorted through them all throughout the years. And this is kind of where I feel is a very safe place that I'm going to be able to to, to, to take us. And I think it means these two things. It mean, one is it means we're, we're created closely enough in the image of God that we can have relationship with him. Can we all buy that? So we're at least made that uniquely made on this earth, separate from all of our parts of God's creation, that we can have a, a, a relationship that, that other parts of creation cannot. And the second thing is that we uniquely, to all other parts of creation, we can represent God. We can represent him on the earth. We should carry that family resemblance. And, and we really must embrace this truth. So this morning, and especially if you're struggling, like, I just don't feel like I am created in the, the image of God because of this or this or this. I want to tell you, the cross speaks a better word. The cross says we are created in the image, and no matter what we've done, that, that, that can't be washed. That can't be washed away. It's a great foundational truth. In, in all of Scripture, that, that we, humankind, are created in the image of God. It's something that we have to embrace. In the Old Testament, that's important. But I want to tell you, particularly when we get to the New Testament, I want to tell you, if you haven't read parts of the New Testament yet, that Jesus Christ is going to insist that we see ourselves as created in the image of God. The Apostle Paul is going to insist that all believers see themselves primarily as created in the image of God. And it's not going to start there because, you know, if you you got to embrace that because the next thing that Jesus is going to insist as we read through scriptures, he's going to insist that we see everybody else that God created as created in the image of God. So there's no wiggle room around there. Uh, this is just the way it is. We have to embrace this. And if you don't embrace 127, you're not going to embrace the next 1,188 chapters of the Bible if you can't embrace this. The image of God. Imago Dei. Loving our neighbors starts with seeing our neighbors through God's eyes, as the image of God. And Jesus taught in, in parables, and, and parables simply were just stories about everyday life that had a significant spiritual truth that was uh, conveyed. And there's a lot of great, memorable parables out there. In fact, so what, what are some of our favorite parables uh, that Jesus taught? Some stories. The prodigal son, the lost son, what else? Parable of the sower. The what? Talents. Parable of the talents. Absolutely. The lost coin. The lost sheep. The money lender. All of these things. Well, I want to tell you, as, as much as I looked at this and, 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 and prayed on it, in terms of the Great Commission, in terms of us living out and being incarnate with our faith, I believe the greatest parable that Jesus taught in terms of mission is the Good Samaritan. 
is a good Samaritan. And it may be a parable that we, we all kind of, of, of know and heard, but I, I want us to look at it uh, in, a, in a much deeper light. We, we need to take away from this this morning just not the good moral uh, lesson that there is that we need to help people that need help. There's something far greater in it, and Jesus is going to reveal that to us. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. We're going to start off there, and it says this, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Not a smart move, in my opinion. Teacher, notice that, he doesn't call him Lord, doesn't call him Master, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? And the man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So we see this guy, really, he's, he's got two motives in here. One is that says right from the beginning, he's there to test Jesus. He's actually there to entrap him so that the religious leaders could take Jesus and get the false charges, put him in a court, a corrupt court, and execute him and get him off because there were so many people following him. It was wrecking up their gig, and so they're, they're against Jesus. So this is part of it. But the second thing is I think that he's just trying to show everybody how spiritual he is. And that's not a bad thing. A lot of us, we sit, sometimes I'm in places, and, and we, we don't mind if people see us a little bit more spiritual than the guy on our left or the lady on our right. This is what he's doing. He's just giving the standard Sunday school answer. Everybody would have known this. If we asked the kids in the back and in, in the, uh, you know, new song kids, hey, what about this? What do you think? And we ask them a question, what do they say if they don't know? Jesus. Right? Doesn't matter what the question, if they don't understand, and then we just go, oh, I'm just so, just, you're so cute, and you said the name Jesus. We don't even care if it's right or wrong. It, it, anyway, it's just something that we know. This is a Sunday school kind of answer. This isn't something that a great religious scholar would have had to, to think on and contemplate. He's just repeating something that everybody knows. In fact, it's kind of like I've even seen, you know, helping your neighbor. Like, is that really Helping somebody in need, is that really something that you have to, you know, go to school or go to New Song Kids or uh, go to seminary? No, we all know that. Even if we haven't read scripture, I can see two two-year-olds and one will fall down and what does the second one do? Reaches over and helps him up. Of course, in case, in the case of when the other one has the favorite toy, they will get the toy first Right? And then they will lift their friend up. But what I'm saying is you don't have to be taught this. This is not a, a big sense. This doesn't come out of being American or being Christian or anything like that. So this guy's answer, really, he is just hiding behind. He is hiding behind just some standard rote thing that you just spew out when you're around a bunch of religious people. But Jesus flips the script on him when he asks the question. Uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. We find this carrying, uh, taken in verse 30. 
Because Jesus replied with a story, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and was attacked by bandits. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. So if he's half dead, what does that mean? He's half alive, right? And by chance, a priest, which is really a pastor, uh, comes along. And, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32, a temple assistant, this is the worship leader. Of course, Michaela would never do that. But uh, the average, uh, maybe, person, at least the one in the story, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but also passed on the other side. And then a despised Samaritan comes along. Now, if we were sitting there when Jesus is originally telling this story, Good Jewish people all around there, I want to tell you, when Jesus brings this person up, all of a sudden, uh, there's something that shifts inside of us. Even speaking the name a Samaritan would have made people's hearts start racing and, and all the things that they were against and would have stirred up uh, offense in them. It, just that mentioning and bringing the good Samaritan in uh, here, somebody, anybody from Samaria. So he comes along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. This guy must have had good credit. Right? Maybe he's known as somebody that takes care of people and stands by his word. The man replied, uh, so Jesus asked, now which uh, of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who attacked the bandits? So there's two Jewish people. What uh, ethnicity was the person that was beaten and left? He was Jewish, most people say. He was Jewish. So here's two Jewish people looking by a Jew, and they say, this guy's not my neighbor, yet a Samaritan did. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So we know, but we can't just take this story to mean that it's just a moral lesson on helping people in need. It's a very, very obvious thing, and he's just kind of hiding before, behind this. But Jesus, as he always did, just cuts right to the heart by asking him this question. And the great thing for us to keep in mind, and the reason this, this, this parable of the Good Samaritan is so important to us today, really, we have to, I want us to be on high alert as we listen to this and, and look at it, um, is because it has such an impact on there. What's at stake is not if we should help or not, but what's at stake is how we view and value everybody that God puts in our lives. That's why this is so critical. This is why it's, it's a, a de defining type of, of story, defining type of truth. How we view people and how we value people, especially those that are different than ourselves. And viewing people wrongly, the priest and the worship leader, this view of other people enabled them to walk on the other side. 
head over to the other side of the road. And I want to tell you that when we devalue those that are created in the image of God, it allows us to do all sorts of horrible things to people. It enables us to be apathetic, to not, maybe we would be, feel sorry for somebody, but we won't get involved in their lives if we don't see them as created in the very image of God. We have to devalue people. If you look at the, the great atrocities that are happening, if you look at um, ethnic cleansing, if you uh, look at uh, abortion, if you look at uh, slavery, if you look at trafficking, all of these things have one thing in common, is that it absolutely requires that somebody in that situation is devaluing the other person, is robbing them of dignity, is robbing them of significance, and absolutely saying, yeah, I might be made in the image of God, but you aren't, therefore I get to use you for my own good or to make myself feel better. Image is everything. And the doctrine of creation, the reason we started in Genesis 1.27 is because the doctrine of creation gives all humankind value, dignity, and worth. And Jesus defines for every religious person that was there and for all of us today that who our neighbor is. And our neighbor is anybody in need. True? Our neighbor is anybody in and need. So it's not just enough to say, yes, we should help people. But the question is, who should we help? Everybody that's in need. The people that God is bringing into our life that we would need to choose to say that this person, I don't care uh, how many days they've worn those clothes. I don't care how different their skin is. I don't care anything else about them. But they are created in the image of God. And every time we act to help somebody that's a neighbor of ours, I want to tell you, we are saying to God, I love you, God. I love you, God. When we reach out and help people, when we make a choice, you know what, I've got something inside me. I see that there's a label on that, but that's going to be a secondary identity for them. Their primary label is someone created in the image of God. And here's why I say this. If we look at 1 John, and John, you know, that guy, he was the beloved. He was Jesus' favorite. Like, I think he thought that anyway. But he really had love down. And he says this. He says, in 1 John 2, 9, he says, If anyone cl claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. There's no wiggle room on this kind of a thing. This is why it's just vitally important to us that we see everybody. We cannot say that we love God and then stand and sit in judgment on the image of God. That's the same thing that the enemy is doing in trying to get us all to devalue the very image of God. And when we choose to see differently, I want to tell you that is just that is kingdom thinking. It's 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 prophetic. We're going to talk about uh, these views. But we need to do this on a daily basis. God, I love you, and I love you. I love all that you've created, and that's how much I love you. I'm going to get past all of my stuff, all of my fears. I want to tell you, any time you have, we think about, this is going to cost me something. And maybe the other guys, maybe they went by, maybe they weren't quite sure if he was uh, Jewish. The guy was naked, so he couldn't talk. He couldn't hear his accent. Maybe they didn't know. But it might have cost them the fact that they would become unclean. Or there, there was some, something, maybe they, they would get robbed. Or maybe they would have to give up their, their shoes to help the guy 
Instead of like riding their donkey, they'd have to put him on. They'd have to walk. It would have cost them something. It costs us something. But the only reason we don't move is one is because we don't see other people the way that God sees them. But we have fears. We think somehow if we give that hour, like we'll never get it back. Or if we give that money, if we, if we give a piece of our heart, if we trust somebody, it costs us something. But I want to tell you that in Jesus is abundance. There is no lack at all. We will always get ours. But we're going to get more than we had before. We're going to get it in ways we can't dream or imagine. That's what God has for those that love him and trust in him, call according to his purposes. Imagine for a moment the street that you live on or uh, maybe you live in an apartment complex or imagine your campus at school. I want to tell you, behind every door, a classroom, is not some, simply somebody who is black or white or Hispanic or Asian or educated or uneducated or gay or straight or disabled or northern or southern or old or young. Those are all secondary types of, uh, of labels. Maybe you've got neighbors, and you've got, you guys have labels for your neighbors? You don't know their name? The guy that's always out there working on his yard, making everybody else look bad because his looks like a golf course? That's the lawn Nazi, right? <laughs> Maybe you have party girl because she's just, yeah, it, just, it goes late at night, and your friends are always over. It keeps you up late. Or the dog people, you know, they got 50 dogs or the cat. I don't know. We all have these labels, and some of them, are, some of them are, are valid. But however else we see people, we have to know that primarily these are all secondary labels, secondary identities to their identity as children of God, as, as those created in his image. They are all imago Dei, the image of God. And this morning, I, I, I'm just, I've, I've been praying, we, 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 have, we have to get this. this. This story here, I want to tell you, we can make a great error if we look at this and we look at the, the religious leader that was trying to trap Jesus and he used the old Sunday school answer, Jesus, uh, in there. Uh, we can look at him and go, and we can look at the pastor that walked by that person in need and go, oh golly, what were they thinking? And then we can see the worship leader and go, oh my gosh, that guy. Oh, he even walked across the street, and he still went back. I don't know. But if we're going to get what Jesus intended to get out of the story, who are we in the story? You and I. We're the wounded person. We're also the Pharisee. <laughs> we're also the religious leaders. We're the pastor. We're the, the priest. The idea is that all of us, we, we hide behind the, the standard religious good kind of moral things when God is really calling us out of our comfort zones and, and into a deep heart issue of how we see other people. We have to be freed of that. We are the religious people. We are the people that have, that have seen others and have put labels on people and made that their primary identity. And we've all used that as reasons for us to walk on the other and stay on the other side of the street. Have we not? So this is where we get out of it. We, we have to see ourselves uh, in this is that, yeah, we, who are these guys? 
And I believe Jesus is calling us to these three things. In this parable, I, I believe this is what he had in, in mind for us today. One is that we see our neighbors with dignity and value and worth. And the second thing is that we see them as their primary identity as child of God. And I want to tell you, I had kind of a head start. We had uh, a walk yesterday. And it was awesome. I was so proud of, proud of you all. And we had, we had great team of leaders. I got some great feedback from the volunteers. But it was so, it, I mean, there was every type of person <laughs> that, was, that was walking in there. Every type of person. And I just had the benefit. I had just kind of brushed up a little bit more on Saturday morning. I was just like, okay, no matter what they've got in their hands, no matter what they've got on their bodies, no matter what language they like anything, I, everybody that comes in here is made in the image of God. I want to tell you, it shaped my whole day. I had uh, the best time I've ever had at, at Tabawak. So we have to do that, that this see them through their primary identity as a child of God. The third thing is, is that we care for them no matter who they are because of whose they are. That we care for them no matter who they are, no matter whose they are. And let's face it, we all have uh, the sliding scale of sin in our lives. We've got some that we see that are pretty bad, horrible uh, things, and then we have some others that, that aren't really kind of all that bad, our little pet sins. And we have this scale, and we have, we have one scale for us, right? And then we got another scale for everybody else. But at some point, somebody has done something too often, or they do a horrible thing, so we, just, we justify and say, well, that's their own fault, that they're in that spot. They don't deserve me to be involved in their life. Well, here's what I want to say. We were all naked and broken and beat on and half dead, laying in a ditch when Jesus came to us. And nobody else put us in that situation. We did that to ourselves by our own choices. Every time we went against the, the laws and the life of God that he had laid out for us, every time we rebelled and chose our own ways, we put ourselves, we are no different. It's just the way that we look at those sins and we view other people that we've got this value and hierarchy set up and I believe that today we're just going to wipe that thing and pull it down and just say that everybody deserves help. We've got some people we minister in a trailer park. And I want to tell you, honestly, in the flesh, we think in some cases after eight years, nine years, are they ever going to change? And I want to tell you this, that yes, that we had a lady last year get baptized. We had been ministering to her for nine years, steeped in uh, addiction, the, just the, the biggest mess you could, of a life you could possibly see. And, you know, in some ways, yeah, we felt like giving up, but we stayed with her. We stayed with her. We stayed with her. She got baptized last summer. Her daughter, adult daughter, got baptized with her. And she got both of her grandkids were dedicated all on the same afternoon. And this was after nine years of pouring out. And how easy would it be? And it's, I'll tell you, it is tiring. And I'm not saying, like, enable people. And if you got an addicted family member that just, like, pump cash at them like every time they need it. Don't, don't get into enabling. But I want to tell you, there's something very empowering uh, about this. And this is what we need to look at. And the fourth thing is that helping those different than us is actually a prophetic act. 
a prophetic act. So when we speak about prophetic acts or prophetic declarations, a lot of it has to do with foretelling. Like we're, we're saying something that's going to happen in the future. God often spoke to his people through a, a prophet this way. But he also did it in terms of foretelling or telling forth something or declaring something, uh, just a, a truth. And this was really the role of prophets. And this is a role that we have today that when we uh, reach out uh, across people that, uh, you know, racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, we join together, help everybody. And you know, I want to tell you that it foretells of an age to come when there is no oppression, that there is no uh, way for anybody to, to abuse and take advantage of anybody, that any dividing wall that exists between any human being is, is, is taken down. And all people are going to do is just walk around and worship Jesus. That strife and suffering that they're experiencing in their life is going to come to an end when they get a little taste of, of compassion, when they get a little taste of Jesus, of, of his love being incarnate through our lives. It's, it's prophetic and that it makes a, a declaration to somebody. You know, it's, it's pretty hard to believe that God is for you when you've been used and abused and broken and you're lying in a ditch, half alive, it's really hard to believe that, that God is for you. And it may even be harder to believe that the church is for you. I just got a, 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 an update. We're uh, partners with Worship Harvest in Uganda, Pastor Moses. So all, all everything that the things that we give in general funds, a portion of that goes to them to help plant churches. And you know we think is it's one way over here because we're uh, there's blacks and, and whites and there's different types of races. Well, you know it exists over there. I'm talking about stigmatisms. And there's a, a group of young girls that get trafficked and abused. And you know what? They can't even get into the church. And praise God, there are church families and leaders like Moses that say, you are welcome here. And they had a big, huge ceremony and had these girls come up and laid hands on them and loved them and restored them publicly. It exists everywhere. You know, there's some just because, you know, you could be uh, in a, a tribe in Africa and you can't marry the person that you really love because they're in the wrong tribe. There's these tribal types of things are the same thing in, in Europe and it, it exists everywhere on this earth. So it's a prophetic thing. And one of the things that we can declare is Psalm 139.14. Some of you in, in uh, some of the translations have fearfully and wonderfully made. In the new translation, this word for the Hebrew, palal, is a thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. But we need to declare, when we are engaged in, in, in kind acts and in the name of Jesus, we, it's saying the same thing. We are declaring to them that you are separated. You are you're distinguished. You have value. You have dignity. You are fearfully. You're wonderfully made. It's a, it's a powerful, powerful message. And you say, well, I didn't say that. Well, yes, you did. And it's okay if you say it too. In fact, we should. Jesus was, you know, he just didn't walk around doing good things, although he did good to everybody that came and asked him for help. 
He demonstrated that the kingdom of heaven was near, but he also proclaimed that the heaven, the kingdom of heaven was near. He also taught and used words. The gospel is actions, but the gospel is words as well. So anyway, my encouragement to you, this is where we're going to end on this today. So you might be thinking, like, how, how I, okay, I can see this thing, and I'm, I'm willing to, to believe that maybe Jesus is speaking to me like he was trying to speak to the, the people that were sitting around in that meeting 2,000 years ago. Uh, but I, I need some practical things to help me get there. I don't know if I can just turn a switch on or off to be able to see people differently. So we're going to give you some ideas. And Andrew, if you could come up and and actually, uh, if we could get into uh, build my life, just stay in those chords because I want to I want to finish with that, that chorus if if you could. But here's how to increase your vision. If you want to, like, fine-tune it and make it accurate, here's how we do it, is that we pray daily for Jesus to open our eyes to see our neighbors as he truly does. Right? So it begins with prayer. In fact, if you look at Paul, the apostle, his, his prayer to the church in Colossae, he's saying, he says, pray for me that I might have an answer in every situation. Because every situation is different that we're going to come in contact with. So we often think that this reaching out is really for people that are extroverts and people that have the gift of gab. I'm telling you, it belongs to people who pray. So all of these, prayer, all these points I'm going to give you are all revolving around prayer. The second thing is learn the names of your neighbors on your street or in your apartment complex. Actually, and I want to say this too, the merchants and clerks that you are shopping at and that you serve, get to know their names. I'm going to challenge you to, uh, when you get gas, to walk into the gas station and say, hi, so-and-so. And be nice to them. If you really want to freak them out, give them cash. You'll stand out. But you've got this kind of diagram, right? You've got five houses over here across the street, five houses here, and the five on, on the next to you. That's ten houses right there. Write it down and learn their names. Write them down and begin to pray for them every day. I want to see, I have seen this in action. Everybody knows Julie and how nice and and sweet she is when she had a mom and this mom was even kind of the mom version of Julie she was like somehow just ah she was beautiful and she never went and preached to anybody but she could make a mean mean plate of brownies and she would begin she would walk across the street hi how are you doing welcome to the neighborhood I know you got kids you know if you ever wanted to go I, I, you know we got a great kids ministry at our church she would go there those that family would start coming they would get saved the person on the left and the person on the right we still have people contacting us 25 26 27 years later saying thank you so much for reaching out over a plate of of brownies but their lives were changed forever and we can think we need to be big and bold and I'm gonna like uh, I don't know if I can do it but I gotta go uh, over to Africa or Australia, somewhere to do a mission and raise a bunch of money, and I'm going to press in. I want to say sometimes the boldest thing we can do is just walk next door. Yeah. Yeah. 
Time and time again, learn your neighbor's names, write their name. I know this is super practical stuff. I don't know how spiritual it is, but, I, but, but this, is the way, this is the way to it. This is the way to it, to spend time. If you don't get anything, is to pray. Oh, open my eyes. Lord, uh, show me. I want to. Jesus was awesome at inserting himself into everyday life of people around him. And the final thing is to look for ways to bless them. If, if you're going five this way, five that way, ten across the street, I want to guarantee you that's, uh, what does that come out to? Twenty houses. Ten of them are being, are suffering from the effects of addiction is affecting them either from their parents or the kids or the family unit themselves. Half of these families are going to be torn apart by divorce. We don't have to go very far to understand that there's, there's great needs right there. And I want to guarantee you, if you begin to pray for your neighbors, and if you begin to pray for ways that God can use you, I want to tell you that you are going to see miracles. They are going to come. Like you, ways you didn't even, things you didn't think you could do. People that you think were beyond the, the cross, beyond the grace of God, all of a sudden come weeping over to your house. neighbors need us.